This is Tim Trelaw. This is David J. Howe. I'm Peter Purvis. I am Sadie Miller. This is Lauren Cornelius. Larry, it's Fraser. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world and beyond, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. I'm Larry Van Mersberg and your host, and I've been collecting for 42 years. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Paul McGann, and I play the Doctor on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the enlightening task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because you knew that was coming. (laughs) My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally enlightening three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch-Safried. Hello, Allison. Hello. If you like what you're hearing, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, at least for now. Just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you store them in a replica of a 19th century sailing ship floating in space. (laughs) Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lemmy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Milton Welling, Louise Dennis, and Bluey. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Almost did it in one breath. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter Davison's second season as the Doctor as we discuss the novelization of Enlightenment. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Enlightenment, adapted by Barbara Clegg from the script that aired from 3183 to 3983, published by Target Books in May 1984. As of this recording in July 2023, this title is not a print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 127 pages. Barbara Clegg is the first woman ever to write a Doctor Who story. In all these years, it's... (laughs) Yes, it took 20 years. 
20 years for them to have a female scriptwriter. Wow. In publication order, it's the first Target book to be written by a woman. We have, of course, already read one Target book that was co-written by a woman, but there's some questions hanging over the authorship of that one as to whether or not she wrote the whole book, which is possible. Mm-hmm. And we have one coming up where a question hangs over it whether or not the person whose name appears on it actually wrote it, but we'll get to that. Barbara Clegg definitely wrote this book. And then we read the Star Trek fan novel, which is not a Target book. but Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Gina Airy. But yeah, that I hate to say this about Gina Airy, but she doesn't count in this particular circumstance. No, no, I understand. We, yeah. we actually beat the BBC to it and Target to it. Yeah. It also happens to be the first story written by a woman and directed by a woman, in this case, Fiona Cumming. Barbara Clegg was born on March 1st, 1926, and actually began her career as an actress before moving over to the writing side in 1961 by contributing scripts to the long-running soap opera Coronation Street. And I just realized something. I think this aired on her birthday. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yep. It did. The first huh. episode aired on her birthday. I never noticed that before. Barbara Clegg, as of this recording, is still with us, though she's since retired both from acting and from writing. She also did a radio adaptation of John Wyndham's novel, The Chrysalids, so she was already familiar with science fiction. But this was her only commission to Doctor Who. Despite script editor Eric Sayward asking her to contribute to the show, as her later ideas were rejected both by him and his successor, Andrew Cartmel, though one of those stories was adapted by Mark Platt for Big Finish. So she has done other Doctor Who related work, it's just not, you know, in the series. Mm. Clegg came up with the idea of higher beings toying with lesser ones for entertainment based on observations of her own family, (laughs) which comprised a group of relatives who were far wealthier than the rest of her family and who treated their less well-to-do relatives with the same attitude. I thought it was going to be children, insects, or space aliens and other family members. Yeah, well, I imagine that it would be hard to tell. The concept of enlightenment in this story is wisdom rather than knowledge is one that Clegg borrows directly from the biblical book of Genesis. So there's that. Mm. Other bits of trivia for this one. Yet another strike forced filming of this story to be rescheduled. In fact, it was recorded last in season 20, which meant that several parts had to be recast, most of them quite happily. But one of these parts, the role of Mansell, who is uh, Captain Rack's second-in-command, mm-hmm. went to singer Lee John. And if you've never heard of him, that's fine. They heard of him back in 1983. <laughs> they probably heard too much of him back in 1983 because he was the lead singer of some band called Imagination. And his performance perfectly captures the fact that he's not an actor by training. Captain Rack was played by Linda Barron whose last contribution to Doctor Who was singing the ballad of The Last Chance Saloon for the Gunfighters back in 1966. (laughs) Okay. So, yes. So, remember Donald Cotton uh, always had a really large woman in most or all of his stories? Yes. Was she the large woman? She didn't appear on camera in that story, but she is indeed a large woman. (laughs) So, yes. It is one of his motifs. Well, yes. That delay in recording also meant that the story was almost cancelled entirely, 
as a result of all this delay, while King's Demons was still recorded on schedule, the planned finale for the season, a story called The Return, which was meant to bring back the Daleks, was held over for next season. Spoiler alert, there's a Dalek story next season. <laughs> so yeah, it'll be right in the title by then. Thus, we get a two-parter for the season finale. A two-parter. Mm. Another friggin' two-parter written by your friend and mine. You know what name is going to come out of my mouth. Except I've kind of blanked out on it. So I, <laughs> I think I, I, I don't. But no. No, no. I... I'll have to put that part in later because I can't remember <laughs> who was... Who have we read? Uh, is it Black Orchid. Black Orchid. Oh, who did Black Orchid? Yeah, see? I'm having the same problem. It's not Grimwade, though. No, God, no. It's not Grimwade. <laughs> not Grimwade. We'll get another Grimwade, but this isn't the time for it. Okay. Um, oh, this is going to bother me until I think of it. Oh, Terrence Dudley. Dudley. Okay, yes. And what was inevitable <sighs> about that? <laughs> what was inevitable about <laughs> Terrence like, Dudley? Something like, another two-parter written by, you know who it is. Well, we've already had, like, two two-parters by him, or at least the equivalent thereof. We've had Black Orchid and we had K-9 and company, so naturally, mm. we were going to have another two-parter, and it was going to be friggin' Terrence Dudley, but, yeah. As long as it doesn't have 40 pages about cricket, I might like it. <laughs> it might have 40 pages about something else, because, again, he does expand the script, but it might be more interesting, it might not. I'm told by Trey Corte that it actually is a better one. I think he's joining us on that one, but I'm not sure. All I have right. to find out. So, King's Demons is technically the last one to be completed for season 20, since The Five Doctors doesn't actually count. It's considered a special, and it was filmed at a different time. We also have another entry on the Mark Strickson entry list. We've only had one entry so far. In the scene where Turlow throws himself off the ship, the Kirby wire that was holding Mark Strickson up broke. Oh my god. And he could only walk with great difficulty for several days afterward. <laughs> oh, he, he's cursed. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't the same sort of Kirby wire break that that poor guy who did the stunts for Spider-Man Into the Darkness on Broadway had. I oh. mean, he, did, he didn't fall 20 feet down and hit a concrete floor. Mm. But yeah, it, it can't have been nice. Mm-hmm. And finally, it was at this point that Peter Davison told John Nathan Turner that he would be leaving at the end of the next season. Although he ostensibly was following the advice of Patrick Troughton to only do three seasons to avoid typecasting, the same advice he would later give to his son-in-law, David Tennant, he was disappointed in the quality of the scripts, and he felt that the relationships amongst his doctor, Tegan and Turlow, were too acrimonious. An opinion that both Janet Fielding and Mark Strickson shared. Hmm. Although the three of them would do their best to inject more warmth into their performances with each other, Davison would still be leaving, just not at the end of the next season. In fact, we'll talk about that when we get there. So, we need a dramatic reading of this back cover. Allison, you've been ducking your responsibilities for a while. Can we have you read the back cover for us? Well, you could have, but <laughs> you uh, put it as a form of an insult or a front to my character. 
let me try it as a positive thing. <laughs> this this book was written by a woman. It was directed by a woman. So the back cover should be read by a woman. There we go. Typecasting indeed. <laughs> <laughs> In response to a warning of great danger given by the White Guardian, the Doctor sets new coordinates and the TARDIS materializes on the heaving deck of an Edwardian racing yacht. But the Doctor soon discovers that this is no ordinary yacht and no ordinary race. Captain Stryker is competing for an unusual prize, enlightenment. The crew will be lucky to reach port safely, but with such a prize, will they be lucky to win? So, first impressions. Dalton, what was your first impression upon getting this one? Well, I was glad to have a regular, illustrated, painted, whatever you want to call it, cover, even if it does have the doctor up in the the neon again. Um, (laughs) The bottom half is quite lovely it does ruin the surprise of the reveal that they are sailing in space instead of actually on the sea but it's still quite lovely and then yeah the the back cover if the the front cover wouldn't have shown me that i would have had no idea the back cover just kind of you know they're they're in a race they are on a ship which they've come upon quite frequently throughout the series. They end up on ships a lot, whether they're spaceships or sailing ships. But yeah, I was was in for it and then the story itself is interesting, but not not the the most sparkling amazing thing, but I did enjoy it. Hmm. And I think you're right by the way, of this season's stories, only Ark of Infinity and the next one do not take place on some sort of ship. So I think you're right. That is odd. Mm. Did they close the quarry for filming? Well, they might have done. I don't know. I, I kind of miss a good quarry. In fact, we're going to get two next season, so we might as well uh, count our blessings while we can. Allison, what was your first impression? That the cover was so bonkers, I really wanted to read this one. <laughs> I think I emailed you as much. Uh, you well, did. actually, I like the way the doctor's uh, photo is set in here. Look, He's totally a, a guy watching a boat race. it it actually kind of works like okay they're racing ships in space with a chandelier or maybe it's a ship made out of light or maybe it's ice castles (laughs) or something and they're racing for enlightenment i'm in uh Mm -hmm. and yes the first time we've seen a woman's name on an official target book yes although again we we did see a woman's name on celestial toy maker and in fact we think that she may have written the whole thing that was my Davis wasn't very well at the time it looked completely bananas in a way that I was interested in. Yeah, and as stories go, it is quite bananas, though. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need to talk about this one. Uh, mm-hmm. What did we like about this book? What were the things we liked about this book, just to start us off? It is not the same old thing. This is true. <laughs> it is not another alien civilization full of functionaries and religions and sort of warring ethnicities and those are obviously very interesting stories that's why we keep reading them but it's uh you know boat race is a a new scenario for us (laughs) and uh i felt like this one continued the momentum that we've had with the turlo stories and wrapped it up in a way that worked because we can't have uh turlo around for like you know a dozen different stories just being 
really terrible at assassination, just incompetent. <laughs> uh, they have to either resolve that story or kill him off or kill the doctor off and have him regenerate or something has to happen. So I, I felt like that story has sort of in- injected a new momentum uh, into what we've been reading for the for the last three. So I thought, I thought it worked very well for the conclusion of that arc. And also it had a school story and then a story that was on a ship, but the idea that it was this ship that was, you know, sort of a hospice ship and we weren't sure what, where it was going and why was also kind of different. So I've enjoyed these three as something that's been a little outside the tropes that we've been reading in recent years. Mm. Just different premises, even. They're collectively referred to as the Black Guardian trilogy, which is a bit of a misnomer because there's precious little of the Black Guardian actually in them, which is one of the good things yes. about them, to be <laughs> honest. In fact, mm-hmm. this story, when Barbara Clegg originally submitted her outline, did not have the White Guardian or the Black Guardian in it. So mm-hmm. the Eternals would have been going through this particular race just to get enlightenment from, from aliens called the Enlighteners. And that city in space that you see on the cover, that's what it's meant to be, mm. is where they go to get it. I, I would love to see what that story must have looked like without the White or Black Guardian in it, because I, I can't imagine the shape of it. Yeah, I thought even after reading this, maybe it was the White Guardian's ship or something. I was pretty sure it was not a chandelier. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that because uh, you can kind of tell that they've been overlaid on the story. They weren't there before and they don't fit into the story all that well. But I've never they wanted them in any story they've been part of, so that was okay. That yeah. sounds about right. They don't really fit, but I feel like it wouldn't take very much to remove them and the story would work. Mm-hmm. Because with Captain Rack, she's a pirate. She doesn't yeah. need the Black Guardian to give her yep. motivation to cheat to win. So, like, if you take out the fact that she's working for the Black Guardian, the story works. And mm-hmm. and even with Turlo, I, I mentioned in his first story that we could have done without him being part of the the Black Guardian's mission to kill the Doctor. Like he could have happened upon him and ended up with the Doctor anyway. And even then, with this story, Turlo's mostly not trying to do anything to the doctor he's not going out of his way to like put him in any danger or kill him Mm -hmm. (laughs) so overall the white guardian and the black guardian bit is like a little sticker that's been placed over (laughs) the rest (laughs) of the story yeah and you're right about rack that she's one of the few eternals that seems to actively be enjoying herself in a Mm -hmm. way that made me question the explanation of the eternals because mm. she definitely has this appetite for, as they put it, entertainment. Who was it yes. who uh, disapproved of Nissa in her last episode giving the Doctor a peck on, a che- on the cheek? Oh, it was John Nathan Turner. And was okay with this BDSM pirate? <laughs> oh, my. Is that fine because she's not on the TARDIS? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, it's not aimed at the Doctor. This is one of the, the racier characters that we've seen, I thought, by implication. Oh, just if you do a Google search for her, the image that comes up, that bodice that she's in, that she fills quite amply. It's like, oh my heavens, yes. If you are into women of a certain age who fill out a bodice very fully, then you would like Rack. It's a well-chosen name, as a matter of fact. What I was going to say, though, is that this is clearly a character with appetites. And that includes for entertainment, 
but also she enjoys her social relationship with the ephemerals in a way that the other Eternals do not seem to emotionally engage with. Like They use them in a very matter-of-fact way, but she seems to enjoy inflicting suffering. So yes. I didn't... I didn't entirely understand what was constitutionally different about her, unless maybe, like Mariner, she had encountered an ephemeral whom she had a stronger connection with and sort of lit learned about life from? I'm not sure. Well, if, if she is a buccaneer, if the people that she has taken from Earth are from that period and she has interacted with pirates, those are the types that are going to have a little more of a sadistic, masochistic view of the world. You know, mm -hmm. They like tinkering with people. They like making people walk the plank. Whereas uh, you know, Captain Stryker, they're Edwardian. They're yep. early 20th century. Stiff upper lip, the whole business. So on that 8th century BC Greek ship, are they having a nice fish roast? And... <laughs> right. It's like, I would love to talking, see their perspective. Talking about so, philosophy in Athena? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so yeah, it, it makes me wonder who the Eternals interact with then kind of impress upon them. See, I thought that and... Mariner was supposed to be unusual in that he was engaging with this human mind. Uh, and that no. Stryker wasn't. No, Mariner is not unusual in that regard at okay. all, because as the doctor points out, Mariner, Stryker, Rack, all of them need human minds in order to even have personality or existence. But I or thought ideas. they were supposed to be like AI mining a data set, and then Mariner becomes more emotionally involved, and that he starts developing this appetite for existence. No, for life. I. I I think it's more that they they all have that. They all have very different personalities already in whatever howling void that they're all from. But when they incorporate as humanoid or human or whatever they are, when they incorporate like that, their natural personality comes out a bit more and they've chosen eras that correspond or maybe it is the other way around and i think dalton might actually have it that the errors that they've chosen to identify with may have infected them with that mm -hmm. way of thinking yeah with mariner he kind of instead of being that stiff upper lip kind of captain type to me he is that romantic sailor type mm -hmm. who is looking for a love to yes. whisk off of her feet and run away with yeah, it's like the Ian Murder character in Carnival of Monsters. He's got that feel about him. Yeah. And Tegan just happens to be one of the most interesting minds he's ever encountered, so there you go. I thought the sort of the uh, reveal there was it's not that he's in love with Tegan, he's in love with someone who is so alive to their own senses and intuition and sort of experiences. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is, because he doesn't understand the concept of love. None of them do, because they just don't have it. Whereas the concept of inflicting pain, well, that's something else that Rack has essentially borrowed from the pirates that she's emulating. So, yeah, I think it's a, one of those chicken and egg type things. Yeah. We don't know exactly <laughs> how the Eternals chose the ships that they did, but they're well suited to the ships that they have. So one of those two things happened, and either way, the Eternals are blank slates. They're tabula rasas, and this is how they express themselves, but they can only express themselves with ephemerals around. It's kind apparently. of a dark view of the Edwardian crew that they have no inner life to take an interest in. 
Yeah, just a tad bit. And the performances on screen, the performance of Stryker in particular, definitely shows that because the actor in question does the entire performance or almost the entire performance without ever blinking. It's interesting, the concept of the Eternals looking like they're in a trance-like state seems to kind of come and go on the page. Yeah, yeah, it does. true on the screen also? We rarely get an Eternal just standing still and not reacting to something because there's someone, there's always something or someone there for them to react to. So we don't really get that. I, I think Clegg really captured that quite well. But I think she was also either another chicken and egg thing. Either she was trying to capture what they were doing on screen or the actors were trying to capture what she'd already put in the script. Mm hmm. But either way, yeah, Stryker is particularly non-human. He's much more passionate in the book at points than he is on screen, ever. Speaking of which, <laughs> uh, we already know what Rack wants Enlightenment for, and she seems to be the one that the White Guardian is warning the Doctor about, because there's the feeling that she's going to win, and if she wins, God help us all. I thought there would be a bit more of a reveal there about who or what they weren't allowed to let win. And I thought it would be something like, don't let any of them win. Like, don't let the race be completed or something like that. That's kind of what I thought, yeah. But if that's the case, why have the race to begin with? And this is why I think that the White Guardian and Black Guardian are kind of an ill fit for this story. Because at the very end of it, they appear to be the ones running the race. But why? <laughs> Why do it if the White Guardian is like, oh my god, I've got to go and warn the Doctor. He's got to make sure that nobody wins this. It's like, then why did you put the fucking thing on? Right. It's like, honestly, if you knew it was going to rain in Chicago, why would you invite NASCAR? It's got that feel to it. <laughs> well, fairness, they didn't know it was going to rain on that day 18 months ago when it was scheduled. I guess not, but still. Well, so sometimes... We're told that captains are very excited about this prize of enlightenment. And at other times, they're having a race because there's nothing else to do in eternity. Right. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And a race is a profoundly sequenced event. Time absolutely matters in a race. So I thought that was, that was an interesting choice, that what seems interesting to them is something that is fundamentally different from their existence in sort of an eternal state. So are they sort of stepping out of their usual habitat to exist in time? Yes, that's exactly it. And they did the tiniest thing they could think of, maybe? It almost seemed like they came up with the activity. And so it was kind of surprising to me at the end when the Guardians were, as you said, running the race. Or, yeah. Uh, not running the race, like competing in it, but were organizing Administrate, it. Administrate, yeah. yeah. Administrating it or... <laughs> They were the organizers, and the Enlighteners were the sponsors who offered the prize. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I suppose so. Yeah, it's it's an odd fit. So that's why I wonder what the original script would have looked like and who the Enlighteners would have been in that script. But I also thought Enlightenment was going to be mortality. Like the prize was you get to die. Well, that's where I was going when I introduced this particular line of discussion that mm -hmm. striker specifically says don't ask me what i want it for doctor i'm not going to tell you it sounds very much like striker wants it for the sake of mortality that's that's what i thought he meant also yeah yeah 
Which yeah. would be a wonderful kind of callback to Modern Undead as well. Yes, wouldn't it? <laughs> because it has been an underlying thing throughout this whole season. Well, mm-hmm. and whether or not Turlo wants to die and get it over with or wants to survive. And I actually like the way over the last three stories he has seemed to vacillate. I just mm-hmm. want to die and have it over with, done with existence on Earth, or, you know, I don't want to spend eternity on this horrible ship or eternity with the Black Guardian being his little apprentice or this or that. But then other times he does things exclusively from this will to survive, which actually is relatable. Yeah, yeah. That one could vacillate in that way, but he's not... Well, we know he's not going to turn out to be human, but he's ephemeral, mm-hmm. and that's relatable. And the Eternals, it was a little more challenging to get a, a handle on what they did or did not feel. Right. About wanting to survive versus wanting things to just be over with. I think of them very much like the Q from Star Trek, except without the ability to create their own reality as the Q have. They kind of do, though. And they've created these ships from things that they see. They Tegan's surrounded yeah. by all these familiar objects that have been in some form created out of the images in her mind that seem to have some kind of physical substance, even if it's temporary. But it's implied heavily that they live in that vast void outside of reality the rest of the time. That they don't go dipping into our reality every so often like Q does. So that's that's the big difference, I think. The reason why they need that sort of diversion is because they don't have it otherwise. Whereas Q can constantly come to our reality and wreak havoc, because that's how he do. Mm-hmm. But the Eternals don't. I'm afraid this is a story you're going to tell your daughter. Now the Q, honey, can come to our reality at any time and wreak havoc. So you need to go to sleep when you're told to. <laughs> or who knows what can happen. I have a feeling her daddy will have shown her all the episodes of Star Trek Next Generation before I ever have a chance to have that conversation. Now, you eat your broccoli because the cue could come at any time. Oh, I'd never force a child to eat broccoli. you need to be strong and broccoli. full of vitamins. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, broccoli's going to save you. Please. It's like the Broccoli Council you said that. <laughs> sure. The Broccoli Council knows where I live already. See, we have backstories here. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of Turlo, though, uh, this is, I have to admit, this is the one part of the script, or rather one part of this book, I should say, that doesn't quite gel for me. And I think it's it, it may actually be the script that I have the problem with, because it's not so much a trilogy as just a set of three stories that happen to have the Black Guardian in them. Because Turlo's motivations and his actions towards the Doctor are so different from story to story. In this one, he's barely on mission. We came out of Terminus, and the Black Guardian was basically saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. If you don't kill the Doctor, you'd better do it now. And we come back to this, and it starts with him playing chess with Tegan. And not a mention of the Black Guardian until the Doctor says something about the White Guardian, and then he gets all silent and nervous, and finally the Black Guardian does show up. But it seems like that mission of his is long since forgotten by the time we get to this story. Didn't get that sense. I felt like he was just kind of stringing it along. <laughs> what, the chest set or the mission? No, no, the mission. Just, you know, well, I can't just, you know, up and pull out a steak knife. You know, I've got <laughs> to be Michael Myers on him. 
Right. Well, no, it seemed like, on the one hand, the Black Guardian has insight into Turlo's mind. On the other hand, it's not absolute. And as they said outright in this book, he's very good at lying and deceiving. That he has managed to convince the Black Guardian, partly by perhaps convincing himself, that the Doctor is actually quite difficult to kill. And he's got to be more strategic and bide his time. But what I did not find consistent at all is when the Black Guardian seems to threaten him with both immediate death and eternal life. Yeah. Alternatively. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you will live the rest of your life on the ship. It's like, so eternal life, right? No, because the ship is going to be going away (laughs) (laughs) after the race is over. So am I dead? Am I alive? Am I Schrodinger's cat? What the hell is going on? Yeah, yeah, it it is uneven, which is why that whole overlaying of the white and black guardian on the story and the Turlo storyline, even though that resolves quite nicely, does feel like an odd fit for it. I thought that Turlo's starting off not caring if he needed to kill the Doctor is the way to survive, because what's the Doctor to him? You know, predictable but classic arc of he actually starts to like the Doctor and Tegan. The Doctor and Tegan both save him at various times. I, I don't remember if there was as much of, of his growing a little more attached to Nyssa. You know that's going to happen, but I thought that that seemed to happen fairly organically, where by the end he doesn't want to kill the Doctor at all. Mm. I just don't understand why of all beings in the universe, the Black Guardian chooses Turlo and only Turlo to be the one right. to get rid of the Doctor. I expected to be told that here and wasn't. Yeah. It's like if if the Black Guardian wants the, the Doctor dispensed with, he should have as many agents as possible to get rid of him. <laughs> Don't yeah. just frustrated by the inefficiency <laughs> of this assassination. Well, if we're told that he's supposed to be this super powerful being, it's like there should be people throughout time and space that are on the hunt for the doctor to dispense of him, to kill him, to make sure that he dies. So why yes. of all people is the Black Guardian so focused on this like teenage person, because I don't know where yeah. he's from, to be the one to do it? You would think so, wouldn't you? But the the way the Guardians are presented on screen, they seem like they're omnipotent, but they aren't. They're very limited in what they can do. In fact, when the Black Guardian hires Turlo, for lack of a better word, he says, I cannot be seen to be involved in this, which implies that there are certain rules that he and the White Guardian have to follow. Hmm. And that kind of makes some sense, too, because at the beginning of this story, the White Guardian is having trouble even getting through to the Doctor. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's true. Because somehow he's having a transmitter failure in the (laughs) Midlands or something and has to borrow the TARDIS's power for it. So they appear to be following a set of rules that they can't break. Sort of middle managers of eternity in some ways, but if they have... Too many people under their management at one time, according to the company rules, uh, they have they have a bump up in benefits. So they're only allowed to have like one assassin or one hero under their influence at a time, is my theory. Well, it depends on which version of the Guardians to go with, because the on-screen version is quite different from, say, the version of the Guardians that Gary Russell came up with for one of the BBC books. And then there's the audio version of them from Big Finish, because guess what? The Black Guardian comes after the Fifth Doctor yet again. (laughs) 
and is a little more direct about it. <laughs> so I haven't listened to those audios either. So, But it does seem strange, doesn't it? It seems like that there are some rules involved there and there are certain limits to what they can do. This is a common thing in serialized fiction when you have recurring characters that start off radically more or less powerful than they eventually become. And in this case, the White Guardian seems a lot less powerful than he did when he was first communicating with the Doctor and, and Romano for, for, his, for his mission. Uh, he, you know, he needs a battery charge. Yeah. Sometimes that goes the other way because, for example, I hate to keep going back to Q, but the first time we're introduced to Q, he can't do everything like he can in later appearances. His preferred way of putting people out of the way is to flash freeze them for some reason, which is kind of a cool effect, but they never do it again. And even he is limited by what the Q continuum says that he can do. Of course, he breaks the rules all the time. Mm -hmm. So it may very well be that the Guardians themselves are closer to the Q continuum than the Eternals are. Sometimes a character who's introduced who is so ludicrously overpowered that it's hard to explain how they could ever possibly lose. And then when they recur, they're sort of powered down. Right. To make them a more proportionate opponent or ally. I don't think that they are all powerful simply because if that were the case, the White Guardian would never have needed the key to time to rebalance the universe to begin with. Well, and I yeah. joke about them being middle managers of good and evil, but there does seem to be an implication that they are agents of other and higher force. And I'm trying to remember how this how this actually worked out with the keys, because I liked some of the individual stories, but I was phenomenally bored by right. the overarching story there. Um, right. Didn't it turn out to be some kind of like yin and yang? They The light and dark need each other, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and that's know. exactly when they're trash talking just before they give the prize at the end of this book, <laughs> when they're trash talking each other, that's essentially what they're saying to each other. You so, can't have light without darkness, et cetera, et cetera. But they, they do kind of beg for a more, for a, a higher level of management above them, I guess mm -hmm. I should say. They're just not powerful enough for what they're supposed to be. Yeah. And though that's just it, isn't it? What are they supposed to be? <laughs> so to go back to Dalton's original point about the Black Guardian, should be able to have several thousand agents out there always gunning for the Doctor. I don't think he can. I think he's only allowed, or not even allowed Turlough for that matter, because he cannot be seen to be acting in this situation. So that when we get to the end of this book, it's, you notice no one's really surprised <laughs> the reveal that Turlo's been in the Black Guardian's employ this whole time. I thought the yeah. Doctor was supposed to have figured it out at the beginning when Turlo uh, pulled a lever to power down the ship. Oh. There's something in there about the Doctor giving him a very shrewd, hard look. Not the lever to power down the ship, but there is some kind of lever that he pulled, that Turlo pulls. There's some kind of negative effect. The Doctor tells him never to touch that lever again. Oh, on he, the TARDIS. Yeah, he reduced yes. the no. power for the White Guardian. And there's yeah. an implic and you know, Turlo's playing and I said, Oh, I didn't know that would happen, etc. But there I thought it was implied that the doctor is if he didn't know before, he knows now that something is up with him and then he intentionally does not leave him alone on the TARDIS. He leaves Tegan on the TARDIS and he tells Tegan explicitly he needs someone he can trust there. And there's this you know, description of eye contact where it's not just that she's good with planes. Um, that <laughs> that there is something that's up and he will tell her later, I thought the implication. 
Yeah, except that Turlo's turning off that power because he's afraid that the TARDIS is going to blow up, not because he's been instructed by the Black Guardian to do so. Yeah, but the Doctor knows something is up with him then, is I thought oh, what, we I were, what we were to infer, that there's something that Turlo is concealing and hiding. But I was yeah. going to say for the, for the explanation of the Guardians being underpowered, the, the headcanon I would go with here is that they are more like monks, like they're devotees of the light and the dark. Okay. Maybe they've uh, acquired a little power along the way, but, you know, the the Dark Guardian, he's trying to guard the dark. He just really loves darkness a lot. <laughs> maybe mm. he's not, maybe the Light Guardian, the, the White Guardian, the Dark Guardian aren't, aren't as closely tied to the light and dark as they would like to think, maybe? I... I don't know about that because both the White Guardian and the Black Guardian do have minions. I mean, the Doctor, it was essentially the Black Guardian's minion throughout the Key to Time season. More like religious devotees and administrators, I should say. Mm, I don't know. And the sad part is we're never going to find out. (laughs) No, that's okay. Because they're never going to be on screen again. (laughs) I can, I can, that's a sadness I can bear. Yeah, (sighs) me too. I mean, like I said, there, there is a book, there is a set of audio dramas. Apart from that, it's all highly speculative, which I am fine with, except for the fact that it causes this whole issue of who decided to have this race to begin with, who's administering it, who actually owns Enlightenment to give it away like that. But yeah, (laughs) I think that's my only issue with it. There's a King of the Hill episode with a group of Buddhist monks who arrive driving a Windstar minivan. I feel like that's the sort of level of order we're dealing with here. Okay. <laughs> that the White Guardian and the Black Guardian are tooling up in a... <laughs> Driving in around a the universe in their, in their Windstar minivans. God, no wonder they're <laughs> bitching yeah. at each other. They're probably tired of each other by now. They do have minions and they do have some power, but they're not... You know, They venerate the light and the dark. They guard them. I, they're... They're not in any substantive way in charge of them. Mm. (sighs) Okay. They just would like to be. I guess. I think without them, the story is fine. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) The the whole deal with the the Black Guardian, I, I said it when he showed up two stories ago. He's not necessary to anything. It's totally, like, extraneous to any part of the plot of any of the stories that it's been in. And it doesn't really change much. At, at the end of the day. <laughs> they needed somebody powerful enough to be able to force Turlo to be an undercover assassin. But why it was the Black Guardian is anyone's guess. It's like they drew the name out of a hat. And I think the only thing that's really served well by that is that we have this character arc for Turlo turning from kind of evilish and cowardly and deceptive to less evilish mm-hmm. and less cowardly and less deceptive even though that that paragraph that we get towards the end of the book when he's offered enlightenment mm, yeah that is an awesome extraordinary paragraph and there's actually quite a bit of build up to it despite what i say in my notes here you you don't get that on screen it just happens he just he just turns <laughs> uh well it's not so much that um mark strickson is doing his best to invest his character with that story arc but the story arc itself the character arc itself isn't actually on the page much well mm-hmm. the danger 
especially with teenage character like this, when you start them off as the antagonist and want them to sort of get in touch with their true qualities and try to start a better life, <laughs> uh, st you know, to, to stop trying to kill our heroes uh, or, or in some way destroy our heroes and instead ally with them or turn their lives around. The danger is that you go from having a really interesting antagonist to a deadly dull protagonist. So I'm interested oh, yeah. in where we'll go from here. I also finally looked up a photo and uh, I, I'd imagine that Turlo was supposed to be like 13 or 14. So I didn't realize he was actually much more of a young adult, which made him a little more sinister. But I'm interested to see how, where it will go from here, because this was the perfect length of arc for the story that they were doing with that character. I am interested, as opposed to being completely bored with the character, uh, I, I am interested <laughs> to see if he'll just become the annoying brat, like certain other teen boys have been on the TARDIS, um, mm. or if they'll have a more interesting development. Uh, let me think ahead for a second. Well, <laughs> because he should not immediately become angelic. It's not a complete personality transformation. He's just no longer on the hunt. Right. He's never going to be completely angelic, no. And there are certain aspects of his personality that will come and go, such as deviousness and cowardliness, even though they generally don't come out at the same time, interestingly enough. That's what's confusing about this book is that Clegg makes it seem like his cowardice is all an act. Mm -hmm. There's multiple passages where he, you know, she says he's acting this way, but internally he's actually feeling this. Yeah, and it's like, what's the deal? Is he actually afraid of these things, or is he acting that way so he can appear sniveling and weak, and then turn on the people at the end? Oh, yeah. a continuation of the last story where we're told specifically that he's plotting out as he's doing various things how he will what he will say and how he'll set his facial expression if people walk in on him and what right. lie is going to tell next and what what emotion he is actually experiencing when he's pretending to flirt pretending to be angry pretending to be hurt this or that so i thought it was consistent with what we'd seen before that he's a master manipulator but not quite as good as he thinks he is whereas I'm seeing it as three different writers interpreting the same character brief, mm -hmm. but having very different takes on that character, because the Turlo that Peter Grimwade gives us is very different than the Turlo that John Lidecker gives us. And that Turlo is very different from the Barbara Clegg Turlo. I guess I'm not getting that at all. I feel like it's pretty internally consistent. Well, let me give it to you this way. The modern undead Turlow is absolutely willing to do whatever is necessary to get off Earth. He's a character of desperation, and he's trying his best to try to get out from underneath his contract with the Black Guardian already. He just wants to get off Earth because he's sick to death of it. The Turlow that we get in Terminus, at least on the page anyway is pretty damn ruthless and is pretty brilliant about his deviousness. As you said, he's constantly thinking about how he's appearing to others, how he wants to appear to others, and he's always thinking two steps ahead. Even if he doesn't always make the right moves, he's trying to. Whereas this Turlow, as I said, is barely on mission. In fact, we don't really get even a mention of the mission until we get our first mention of the White Guardian, and I think that comes in, what, five pages, six pages in? Mm -hmm. 
And even then, it takes a while for the Black Guardian to show up, so... I thought that we had an explicit statement towards the end of Terminus that he doesn't want to kill anymore. Mm. But maybe I'm imagining that. Maybe that didn't happen. (sighs) I'd have to go back and check. I'm actually editing that episode right now, so... Um, I could probably tell you next time we I mean, meet. I thought the arc was that he, as he gets to know the <laughs> the ensemble, <laughs> that he no longer wants to kill them, whereas before he was totally fine with it. And he was on mission, not because he wanted blood, but because he wanted to fulfill the agreement and finish it. But then as he has these adventures with them, he becomes attached to them. And he doesn't want to kill them. Well, I don't necessarily mean that his motives have changed. I mean, the personality behind the motives changes that Turlo reads very differently on the page in each of these three books to me that may just be my opinion but it it feels like a different character whereas on screen Mark Strickson plays him pretty much the same throughout all three stories it it feels different on the page mm. and I can't really say that even though Clegg does give Turlo a much rounder resolution than he gets on screen I don't really care much for the rest of his characterization in the story except for the bit where he's specifically trying to get the doctor off the ship and stay with rack the doctor thinks he's doing it so that he can give them a fighting chance turlo's actually doing it because he wants to get out from underneath the black guardian's thumb or whatever that felt a little bit more like the turlo from the second book but yeah that's where reading these books sometimes gets in the way because the writers always have a different interpretation of the same brief. Right. So I think that's a lot of it. Pretty good Tegan in here, I thought. Oh, God. Mm. Brilliant Tegan. She's always the target for the mind control, it seems like, or the mind probes. <laughs> oh, oh, no, not the mind probe. I'm sorry, we were about two stories early for that. <laughs> oh, the, the creatures who put their long fingers into your mind like Tegan a lot. Yeah, they really do. Because the Eternals say that the Doctor, they can't quite figure out. Turlo fascinates Rack because he's absolutely devious and not what he appears to be. So that's Clegg putting that bit of the character brief in. Whereas Tegan, Tegan must be just like a chocolate sundae to these people. (laughs) Because she's got this bright, brilliant mind, even though... We've basically seen her complaining her way through the TARDIS more often than not. But also, she seems to live so close to the surface and in the moment, while still being very smart, that she's not plotting and planning ahead like Turlo and the Doctor are. Yeah. But she still does smart things, and that seems to be new to them. Because they seem to exclusively prey on humans from Earth, it seems like. Like, they talk about ephemerals as this broad category, but they've got all Earth people. Yeah. And I think you're right, because it's Tegan who gives the Doctor the idea of what the focus must be. And it's like, oh, there we go. Except he's so he's so annoying about it. Clank doesn't seem to like the Doctor sometimes, because I'm, I'm looking at that paragraph right now, and it reads like this. Uh, what would this focus look like? Tegan felt desperate. It could be anything the doctor said irritably, but he stopped flinging himself around the wheelhouse and peering into corners and examining nautical instruments, and he looked at her again as though she had a reasonable degree of intelligence. And my note was, as though? Oh, fuck you, doctor. Yeah, well, and then later, the doctor is seemed said to have an expression that seems to say, ah, women, or something like, wait, yes. did you like to say the doctor's sexist? Oh, it's in the same chapter. 
It's almost the same scene. But we, we the readers, are put on Tegan's side, not the Doctor's side there. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. This is definitely an iteration of the Doctor is a bitch. Yeah. Throughout the story. Just a little bit. I didn't see that so much as the Doctor is more in over his head than usual. I think it's elements of both. He's being bitchy because he doesn't know what he's doing, as usual, but more so than usual. He knows less of what he's doing than he usually does. And we had a lot of that in Terminus as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The Fifth Doctor is that Snickers commercial where the person just needs to eat a Snickers and everything will be better. (laughs) (laughs) And he never gets a Snickers. He never gets a Snickers, so he's always on edge. And just... He he just needs a Snickers bar to lie down, yeah. and he'll be fine. In a blankie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, my God. Oh, that's brilliant. Mm. I, I do want to ask, though, concerning Tegan, the relationship with Mariner, because that is probably one of the most striking things about the TV story. And probably I think this only because I have the most intense crush on the actor who plays Mariner. Because, good God. If I were Tegan, I'd be like, okay, yeah, fine. I'll I'll be your identity. My thoughts, your thoughts, etc., etc. Fine. I like, I like that whole romantic Spock sequence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's essentially that. But how did that come off to you on the page? Was it as creepy as it was intended to be? Oh, yeah. Creepy as hell, I thought. Completely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That, no. that he, once again, it's appetite. It's not that he is enamored of the person whom he wants to be with, but the person who he wants to actually be. It's like he has an appetite to suck all he can from her thoughts and experiences to learn to experience them. And then he will probably discard the individual because he hasn't learned the part of ephemeral existence about friendship and companionship. He just wants to be able to experience more. That's how I read it. Yeah, he came across very Buffalo bill And that she gets totally used to guys like that. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. Yes, she does say that in the book, doesn't she? Mm -hmm. She says something along the lines of she's used to guys being very concerned about her because she is a bit of a looker, obviously. Yeah. But also used to someone who thinks that they are enamored of her in a way that is pretty surface and that she sees through immediately. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's met a lot of guys who want to like sort of suck the experience out of her brain in the same way. But I I thought it was actually kind of a nice insight that she is used to being attractive to potential suitors who love the way she makes them feel Mm. and don't really see her the person. They just see the way she makes them feel. And she sees through that immediately, even though this is a nearly supernatural space alien. Right. She still sees something she recognizes. And the idea that, once again, that Tegan is not the intellectual that many of the other companions have been, but Tegan has very high EQ. Yeah. And that helps her navigate situations that uh, you know, Nissa can't as well, for example. And even this mm-hmm. doctor can't quite as well sometimes. Right. Sometimes she's ahead of him. Not often, but sometimes she is. Yeah. By the end of the televised story, you kind of feel sorry for Mariner. I'm wondering if that actually translates to the page at all. No, I thought it was more he was revealing himself as just wanting her as another sort of greed. Or wanting her experience as another sort of greed. I can't live without you. Not I can't bear to be parted from you, but I can't bear to not have this new possession, this new toy Mm. of existence. Dalton, what did you think? I felt like a little bit of sadness toward him in his situation, but 
throughout the story, like he's just skeevy. He just seems so off-putting and <laughs> disgusting. But then, yeah, by the end, it's like, how to say this without sounding offensive? It's like, it's kind of like, realizing that someone is on the spectrum after the fact Mm. and so then it colors the actions in a different light you know okay so realizing i mean yes i understand that he he's an internal throughout the book but by the end of it you kind of feel like he he doesn't know any other way to be and so his own kind of desperation and his own as allison said it comes across as greed but he doesn't understand that he's being greedy about it he just sees that there's this thing that he wants to to know more about and to fully experience so yeah in some way you feel kind of bad for them that they don't get to create their own existence they don't have imagination they 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 have to depend on other beings to create a reality for them. So in that way, it's kind of, you you feel for it, but it is still very creepy. (laughs) That is sort of the sort of character that Jeremy Northam and Jason Bateman specialize in. They've both done this at least three times. The very handsome, wholesome man who, by the end of the story, you realize is really off (laughs) in some way. That might be it then. I I think a lot of it may just be Christopher Brown's particular performance in the story. But there can still be some pathos to that being really off. They are just not what they initially seem to be. Right. What else would we like to say about this book? I feel like Clegg is very into boats. (laughs) (laughs) The way that Grimwade was very into the Concord in time flight oh god probably I, I wouldn't go that far i mean i think she gives us just enough of the technical stuff that we can understand what's going on but i don't think she's telling us exactly how you sail a boat the way that she would have if she'd been in, it's in a not that situation, quite right? that level of wankery but it it borders <laughs> on it to me <laughs> i did have to look at a bunch of the terms yeah yeah, there were a lot of things that I was like, I don't quite know what this is. I don't I don't know too much about boats then. How do you have an alley in a ship? I don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I guess that makes sense because most people would know what the uh, foxhole is and where the wheelhouse yeah. would be and all of that. But yes, so that not, not to his level, yeah. but it did seem like there was a lot of terminology that I wasn't familiar with that I had to kind of wrap my head around. <laughs> But it's not 60 pages about no, cricket, no. is it? Man, I'm so glad I missed this one that I evidently left a, a strong <sighs> negative impact on the two God. of you. Oh, just a, <laughs> just a little bit of one. Except we kind of liked parts of it. We just didn't like the 60 pages of cricket. It needed some severe editing. <laughs> yeah. Dalton is available <laughs> to edit. I'm about 40 years too right. late. <laughs> Dalton and a pair of scissors serving. Yeah. <laughs> Well, to answer your point on this, Dalton, I think the reason why it comes across that way is because, despite the cover, Clegg is very much trying to preserve the reveal that we get on screen, which comes, by the way, at the end of episode one. So we get an entire 22 minutes of story before we know we're Mm -hmm. on a ship in space. So she's got to basically pound it into our heads that we're on a ship. And it actually works pretty well. Yeah, the back of the book tells us that. that Aren't we more than half of the way through when uh, the story before we're told that they're racing for the prize of enlightenment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so these things that she's dribbling and drabbling out through the story are unfortunately right in our face on the cover. And if ever you buy the DVD of the story, 
same difference. Everything's going to be revealed to you before you even get to the story. So yeah, I think that might be the reason why it seems so... uh, I would have said wonky, but wanky, (laughs) yeah, definitely. (laughs) Anything else you want to say about this one? It actually played to my sort of claustrophobia-related fears that I also find, in my tight confining spaces, uh, panic-inducing. Uh, vast limitless ones as well. So I found the image of a ship deck just open to space to be very striking. Mm. And also the mm-hmm. the compartment on rack ship as well with the vacuum shield. It's just this sort of grid open to space. Uh, it was something that we haven't seen before in a way that's surprising. We've seen space scenes, but always on spaceships and the TARDIS and somehow the more familiar historic structures I thought really emphasized the sort of the vastness and the the reverse claustrophobia and the fear of that, and the fact that Turlo, who we've we have these different hints throughout as some kind of space alien, it's been on all kinds of ships, et cetera. The fact that he is afraid in various contexts here shows this is not this is not a usual thing for anyone to be just be kind of like out in space in the same way that you would be out in the open air and the open sea. So I thought it worked as a different atmosphere than than we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It, it definitely has originality going <laughs> for it. <sighs> one, one last thing that I probably shouldn't have thought was funny, but kind of made me laugh, was the doctor taking the tiara and then throwing it on the ground and going crazy at it with an <laughs> axe. Why did he think mm-hmm. that that was going to... I guess maybe destroying the doctor finds both hereditary monarchs and beauty pageants incredibly regressive. <laughs> He's done with tiaras. <laughs> but it's like if the if the crystal if the gemstone is the focus, then it still exists for them to focus on. So breaking it up is because the fifth doctor doesn't know what the fuck he's doing half the time it would make sense to break it up it wouldn't be like uh wouldn't be the large i mean if it's supposed to work like a prism it wouldn't work in quite the same way wouldn't be as powerful i suppose yeah i i would don't know what else is he gonna do pitch it out into space Yes, because that's what he eventually does. Well, that's what he should have done. <laughs> yes. That actually would make more sense. So she would just fire out and off the ship. Uh, it's it's completely for drama. Yeah, it's completely for drama's sake, especially, and it doesn't necessarily work all that well on screen because you see when they're trying to gather all the bits of the crystal, they don't get them all. Some of them are still in the carpet. So it's like, uh, you do realize that ship is still doomed, right? Oh, well. Relatable content when, you know, you break a glass, still sweeping it up weeks later, you think you got everything at the moment, but... I guess since it is an Edwardian ship, they can't have a Hoover around. Yeah. You break your Lego set and you're still stepping on the mucks later. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's do it. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. 
The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.54, which is slightly more than the previous one. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it 3.5 stars and says, This was, in my opinion, the best of the Turlo Black Guardian trilogy. Some of the special effects are a bit ropey such as sailing ships in space, and are much better represented on the page, though the CGI Special Edition ships are better again. The thing that struck me most about this book, along with the preceding two, is how natural Turlo's journey towards repentance is. I find the on-screen journey less convincing because we can't hear Turlo's doubts. Okay, I, I can see that. I can see that. Elizabeth gives it three stars and says, as an adaptation, this is fairly thorough. In fact, it's almost a transliteration of the events of the episodes themselves, and while in a way that's good, it's also a big part of the problem. Doing a novelization of something from an audio or video source gives you a unique opportunity. While you can do internal monologues in audio and video, it's something you have to set up and it's something you have to sacrifice some of your runtime to, but a novel adaptation of such a thing doesn't face that same limitation. In fact, we saw that in the last book. You can really get into the headspaces of characters, examine motivations. Even if you want to go beat for beat along the thing you're adapting, you can flesh these things out. And it's a real shame that mostly this one just doesn't most of the time. Still as an adaptation, I would probably have been tempted to give it like five and a half stars if it were better written. Or what scale is that person operating on? Five I, and a half I don't out of know. how many is that well, good? Well, out of five, it's good read, so, uh, so hush <laughs> now. I wonder if there was some sort of length limit they had. That would actually make a lot of sense. Yeah, actually, they did have a length limit. Like, there are weird things where multiple characters are talking and acting in the same paragraph. Yeah, I noticed that too. The narrative skips from brain to brain in a third-person omniscient whirlwind that on more than one occasion left me confused about who was saying or doing things. There are also times when it felt like the narrative kind of got bored with parts of scenes and just sort of shouldered past them to get on to the next thing, which again makes me wonder if there was some sort of length limit. For all of this, I did enjoy the read, and the book has a place on my shelf. Like I said, this is a story that I enjoyed in live action despite its issues, and the book didn't get quite there for me, but I've got a soft spot for the attempt. And finally, Carl gives it five stars and says, The end of chapter three brought back vivid memories of the episode one cliffhanger, which blew my tiny little mind back when I was a boy. End of review. That's the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? Um... I had initially said 3.5, but I think I'm going to actually give it a 3. Um, I don't know. Something about the whole Black Guardian, White Guardian, you know, us talking about it just makes me feel like that just took up too much energy for me <laughs> with, this, with this book. Even though it's not a big part of it, it just it, it muddies it a little bit. I think that the story could have worked without that, and it probably would have been better off without it. But overall, the, the writing is decent enough the story is interesting so yeah i'll give it a three okay and allison i i agree that the guardian content was excessive modest though it was and put a damper on the whole thing but uh, i've really liked this whole trilogy i'm sorry it's named after the black guardian 
And <laughs> I, I feel like we've had really good Tegan and Turlo content, especially good Tegan in this one as well. And uh, I've really enjoyed the regained momentum um, that we've had with these stories, including within this one as well. So I'm actually going to go three, which is high for me. Hmm. Okay. And I'm going to complete the trifecta. I'm also going to give it a three, but not because I particularly liked it, mainly because I've, you probably got the impression I really loved the televised story. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping for the same thing that Elizabeth wanted from it, which is an expansion of the televised story. And that doesn't really happen here. And I think part of it is the unfortunate effect of coming off the book of Terminus and getting into this book and expecting, and I hate to say this, expecting a lot out of the first female writer to write for Doctor Who and also write a target novelization and getting something that is a lot closer to Terrence Dix. It's not bad Terrence Dix, mind you. It's not bad Barbara Clegg. It's still a good story. It's just, I really wanted there to be more here. And there are brief, occasional flashes of brilliance, but they're offset by the reported dialogue and all of that. So yeah, I'm also going to give it a three for just those reasons. So threes all around. Which Mm -hmm. is from you two low and from me high. So different threes. Yes. I'll say though also that the reason I gave it a higher than than usual rating is also because I'm actually pretty easily bored with these what does it mean to be human kind of stories. But this one got just a little bit under my skin in a good way. And that and it's that bit that will I think will stay with me that that pushed it up higher for me. And I think it's exactly that, Allison, which is why I love the TV story so much because that comes across so much more in the performances, and it feels a little flat on the page to me. So I think at some point you should really watch the TV story because it is uh, it's really something special. This book not so much. So thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we discuss the novelization of a two-parter, The King's Demons. Yes. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. And no, we will not be doing one of those accounts on Instagram that started today, so don't even ask. (laughs) <laughs> He's afraid to speak the name lest he summon it. Yes, I am actually. And if all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.